Fired employees are often known to behave badly against their former employer. Uh, maybe you heard about the fired Raisin Cane's employee who, in an act of revenge, published the secret list of ingredients to their special sauce on her Facebook page. Oh no, what are they gonna do? Or maybe you heard of the Saks Fifth Avenue employee who, after getting his pink slip, managed to steal $7,500 worth of gift cards from the store before he was escorted out of the building. Perhaps you've heard of Juan Rodriguez, who worked in computers for Marriott Hotels. Uh, Mr. Rodriguez was let go, well, found out he was going to be let go, and then he logged into the system and changed the rental rates to the hotel, charging people only $12 for a one-night stay. <laughs> Uh, the company lost $50,000 over the course of a few hours before they were able to correct the mistake. Companies know that terminated employees cannot be trusted. In fact, in a 2009 survey performed by the Ponymon Institute, not the Pokemon Institute, different institute, by the Ponymon Institute, 59% uh, of employees who were either fired or quit admitted to stealing corporate data on their way out the door. Of those 59%, 67% of them said that they used that information to leverage a new position with a new company. Now, such behavior is, of course, illegal. The word for this is stealing. And if you get caught stealing from your former employee after losing your job, you, your former employer after losing your job, you could go to jail which makes a story Jesus tells in the Gospels all the more interesting. He tells a story of a fired employee who behaves badly and steals from his boss on his way out the door. What's confusing about the story is that Jesus doesn't condemn the employee or says that he should go to prison. He doesn't condemn him. In fact, Jesus commends him. And what's even crazier is he kind of sort of tells us to go and do likewise. The story takes place in Luke chapter 16. It's the next story that I want to look at in our current series on the parables of Jesus. It's called True Story, Life-Changing uh, Lessons from the Parables of Jesus. As we've been talking about here at Rooftop, we believe that Jesus was the Son of God who came to earth to die for our sins and rose from the dead. He also came as a teacher to teach us about life and faith. And his favorite teaching device was stories, which we call parables. Now, uh, we all have our favorite parables, right? Uh, Good Samaritan, uh, Lost Sheep, uh, Prodigal Son. But there are other parables that we might not know and love so much. And honestly, this morning's parable is, for me, one of those. This is actually, if I can say this, my least favorite parable. Why? Because it's, it's really confusing, and for the longest time, I actually had the hardest time seeing its importance or relevance. I, I, I wanted to just kind of skip it or give it to Jacob or Jeremy to preach on. <laughs> but I knew that wouldn't be fair. Plus, anything that comes out of the mouth of Jesus is by definition brilliant and worth discussing, no matter how difficult it might be. I mean, if we read Jesus' words, and we're not like absolutely blown away by them, then we're not reading them closely enough, and we need to try again, or again, and again. And sure enough, over the past couple weeks, as I've been studying this parable, I've, I've developed a, 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 a real fondness for the parable. It is not my least favorite parable anymore. I would put it more towards the middle. Not as high as, you know, the Good Samaritan, but not lower than the wineskins. But regardless of where it ranks in Matt's meaningless hierarchy of favorite parables, 
I think it has something important for us to learn. So with that odd introduction, let me read to you the parable of the shrewd manager. It's from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master has taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. That's a lot of olive oil, right? Well, the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, 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 and make it the 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's the parable of shrewd manager. Now, it's a difficult parable. For 2,000 years, scholars, Bible scholars have actually had a hard time figuring out what the point is how to interpret it. Uh, in my research, I actually encountered over 15 possible different interpretations of the parable of the shrewd manager. But before we get to this, the tricky matter of interpretation, let's just go ahead and sort of reset the scene first. A rich man has employed another man to manage his money. This financial manager or this financial steward has all the authority that he needs to manage the boss's money. Unfortunately, the rich man discovers that the financial manager has been wasting his money somehow, so he resolves to fire the guy from his position. Now, the manager is upset, and he's upriver. He has no other skills to use. He says, I'm too proud to beg. I'm too weak to dig. He fears he might end up homeless. So what does he do? Hmm, what can I do? Well, he calls up some people who owe his boss some money. They don't know he's been fired. He doesn't volunteer that information. He just pretends to be doing his boss's business. He asks them how much they owe the man. Then he slashes what they owe, which motivates them to pay up. They're grateful because he just saved them a bunch of olive oil. And he's excited because he just made some friends who might be helpful, especially if he needs some olive oil. Now, we would think that the rich man, upon hearing this, would be upset. Sure, he got some money that was due him, but he also lost some money that he was supposed to receive. Now, the manager didn't necessarily steal on the way out, but he certainly misrepresents himself. We would expect the boss to be upset. But here's where the parable surprises us. And remember, in the parables of Jesus, there's almost always a surprise. And you've got to look for the surprise. And here's the surprise. Instead of being upset with his former employee, the rich man commends him. Why? Because he says he acted shrewdly. He found a way to use his position to help him land on his own two feet, even though he had to act unethically to do it. And according to Jesus, we have a lot to learn from the shrewd behaviors of this dishonest criminal. 
That's the parable. Scholars are troubled by it. The big question here is why Jesus could in any sense condone the dishonest actions of this man. I mean, elsewhere Jesus says, hey, people, let your yes be yes and your no, no, right? Be rigidly honest. Presumably that means not pretend that you still have a job after you've been fired from that position. So how should this dishonest man possibly serve as a model for our faith? I mean, what he did was wrong. We all know it. In fact, Jesus seems to know it. Jesus, in the parable, describes him as dishonest. When I was a kid, for example, uh, one time I went around the neighborhood with an empty coffee can collecting money for the poor. (laughs) I told my neighbors that I was collecting money for the poor. My neighbors were so helpful. They were so generous. They gave me nickels, they gave me pennies, they gave me dimes. Mrs. Bregolio gave me a dollar bill. I didn't tell them that I wasn't collecting money for the poor. Um, I wasn't collecting money for the poor. I was actually raising money to buy baseball cards. (laughs) Now, my parents never found out about it until this sermon. But if they had, they would not have said, Wow, shrewd move, young man. (laughs) How much did you make? Well done. No, no. They would have said, you go back to our neighbors, Matthew Randall. You apologize. You return that money. You come back back here with your pants down, ready for a spanking, a bare-bottom spanking. That's how we think Jesus would have responded. So then the rich man bare-bottom spanked his former employee. (laughs) I would have loved to have seen that in scripture, by the way. (laughs) But that's not what he says. He says the master commended the man and that we should, in some sense, imitate him. Now, in order to solve the problem of how Jesus could commend a criminal, scholars have offered uh, a a lot of theories. For example, uh, people think that, you know, perhaps the dishonest manager wasn't being that dishonest. Back in the first century, it was actually illegal in Jewish culture to charge interest on loans. You couldn't do that back in first century uh, uh, Jewish Palestine. And so maybe they would say uh, the, the financial manager was like lopping off illegal interest to save them from having to pay that. The only problem here is that there's absolutely no mention of interest in the story. Or maybe another related possibility is that the manager is doing a little bit of a, a Robin Hood impersonation. You know, robbing from the rich, giving to the poor. Uh, The rich man is maybe an evil person getting rich off of oppressive loans to poor people, and the manager's just kind of helping them out. The only problem here is that these loans are not actually not that big, historically speaking. And as Jesus tells the story, we have no indication to think that the rich man is, you know, some evil person. There are other attempts to solve the problem, but upon inspection, they all fail. And we are left with the tricky question of why Jesus seems to commend this guy. Well, the first thing I need to mention here is that this is not the first time Jesus tells a story about unsavory characters to make important points. In fact, he does that a lot. He tells stories with shady characters. He tells a story comparing God to a heartless judge who refuses to grant justice to a really annoying, needy woman. He compares himself to a thief who will surprise people in the middle of the night. For the record, thieves are bad. Jesus wasn't afraid to use morally questionable characters to make important points. We think of Jesus as some perfect goody two-shoes who never cussed or spit. 
But he wasn't like that. He hung around dirty folks. He taught using real-world stories about criminals, not the sanitized versions we think about. Honestly, and I want to get off on a rabbit trail here, but it's one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of Christian fiction and movies. The characters are just usually so shallow. The story's just too perfect. Listen to Jesus' parables, and you find a much different, more real type of storytelling. Jesus uses all kinds of characters to make his point, but that does bring us back to the parable. What is his point? What does Jesus think this dishonest thief has to teach us about following him? Well, of all the many interpretations that people offer about this parable, I'm going to share with you the two lessons that I think stand out as the strongest possibility. Strongest possibilities. It might mean the first, might mean the second, might actually mean both. I'll share both possible lessons with you, and I'll leave it up to you, although I will tell you which one I think it probably means. Possible lesson number one is this. Christians should be a shrewd brood. Christians should be a shrewd brood. Towards the end of the parable, Jesus says something important. He says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. The key word here is shrewd. To be shrewd means to be wise and calculating. That's what the dishonest manager was. He was shrewd. He figured out a way to use what remained of his position to save his skin. And Jesus says that the people of the world do this a lot better than do the people of the light. The people of the light are us, God's people, we who follow Jesus. And maybe Jesus is telling us, the people of the light, God's people, that we need to be more shrewd, more wise. In fact, shrewdness is something Jesus seems to value. This is not the only time that Jesus talks about shrewdness, right? In the Gospel of Matthew, he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. You might, not, you might know that verse. <clears throat> Jesus is telling us to be careful in a dangerous world. Be wise. He doesn't tell us to be less innocent. He doesn't tell us to sacrifice our integrity, just to be innocent and wise. So according to this interpretation of the parable, uh, Jesus is commending the manager's shrewdness, but not his immorality. You can be shrewd without being a criminal. Now, if this is actually Jesus' intended meaning, if it is, it has an important lesson for us. Because God's people can sometimes be too innocent, not shrewd enough. We can be too naive. What do I mean? I mean that sometimes God's people can be too good for our own good. <laughs> we don't, if you know who that is, you understand the parallel, but it would take far too long to explain it to the rest of you. We don't always know how to interact in the world. We can be too optimistic, we can be too trusting, we can be not discerning enough. I'm thinking, for example, of the millions of Christians around the world who uh, attend or are drawn into huge megachurches that are basically manipulative personality cults without using their brains. Or I'm thinking of Christians who don't prepare for the future They don't save, they don't think about the future, just kind of deciding, I'm just going to trust God with the future. Or I'm thinking of pastors who just pray that God will bless and grow their church without, you know, putting together a marketing plan. Or I'm thinking of Christian parents 
who are so desperate to protect their kids from the evils of the world and keep them pure from the world's filth that they isolate their children. They teach them innocence, but not shrewdness. I know lots of Christians like that who are too good for their own good. They don't have a lot of street smarts. Jesus knew a lot of these people too, and he saw it as a problem. Jesus wants his people to be innocent, but also be able to navigate a corrupt world. Now, the solution here isn't to be less innocent. Again, Jesus doesn't commend the manager's dishonesty, just his shrewdness. The solution is to balance shrewdness and innocence. So that's maybe the first lesson. Christians should be a shrewd brood. The parable might mean that. A lot of scholars actually think so. But me, I'm more of a fan of possible lesson number two. Possible lesson number two is this. Be generous with friends so that you have a friend at the end. There's a lot of rhyming going on here this morning, right? Shrewd brood, friend at the end. I'm releasing my inner poet Be generous with friends so you have a friend at the end. A few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Jacob told you that one of the most important things to do when interpreting a parable is what? Anybody remember? One of the most important things to do, context, right? Yeah, he did tell you that. That's not actually what I'm referring to right now. Context. Something else. Look at the last line. Look at the last line of the parable. A lot of times Jesus becomes very explicit about the intended meaning of the parable in the last line. And I think that's the case here, as he says in verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So hopefully you can see the parallel here. The dishonest manager uses money to make friends who will take care of him when he's out on the streets. Jesus sees a parallel here regarding how we should use our money to make sure we have somebody to help us out at the end of our lives. Because the truth is, we are all going to get fired. We are all going to get fired. And when I say fired, I mean fired. We're all going to die and be in danger of the fires of God's judgment. That's what I mean by fired. Fired as in fired from life. Fired as in facing the fires of hell. We're not going to have jobs here forever on earth. We're not even going to live forever here on earth. Our mistakes are going to catch up to us. Our sins are going to track us down. Our bad choices will come back to haunt us. Death will come find us. We are all going to be fired. We're all going to face God. We are all dishonest managers. And what happens then? We're not going to have a lot of options. We're too proud to beg, too weak to dig. No sinner standing before the judgment seat of God has a lot of options. Hmm, what can I do? What can I do? What are you going to do? That's the crisis that Jesus is describing here. Now, to his credit, the dishonest manager realizes it. He realizes he's up a creek, so he shrewdly takes action and uses his boss's money to make sure he has some friends to look after him. That's Jesus' point. We're all up a creek. We're all going to be without a job. We're all going to have to give an account of our management, and we will all lose our jobs. What are we going to do? I mean, if you've ever faced the prospect of unemployment, you might know the feeling, right? 
Maybe you got fired after working someplace for 20 years. You have no other skills to market. What are you going to do? Maybe you got fired and you're in your late 50s. You can't imagine anybody's going to hire you. What are you going to do? Maybe you got replaced by a robot or by artificial intelligence and the only jobs you can work are in Mexico. What are you going to do? Jesus is saying that we're all going to face that moment when we die. We're all going to get fired. We're all going to die. We won't know what to do. Given this knowledge that we're all going to get fired, what do we do? And he tells us. He tells us what to do. He says, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Basically, be generous. God rewards generosity. Be helpful to friends in need. Be generous with strangers. Tithe to the church. Go out of your way to help the poor. In the way we help our friends with our time and money, we will have a friend at the end who will take care of us in our unemployment. So the parable isn't necessarily about shrewdness. The parable is about money. The parable is about using our God's money well here on earth so that we're going to be taken care of in the end, which if you think about it, it's actually kind of shrewd. This is actually a theme throughout Scripture. As Paul writes to Timothy later in the New Testament, command those who are rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And here you go. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. We who are rich should be rich in generosity so that we will be rewarded at the end with the life that is truly life. That's what he says. Now, I know that when a lot of you read this verse, you think, well, that doesn't apply to me. Command those who are rich to be rich in generosity. That's not me, right? That's your thing. I'm not rich. And yes, there are people in America who are not actually rich. On the other hand, nine out of ten Americans live more richly than most people in the history of the world ever have. If you live in America, you are almost by definition, at least by comparison, rich. We are so blessed here. We have the opportunity to share our blessings with others so that God will take care of us at the end of our lives. And that's what motivated the steward. He knew he was in trouble, so he used the boss's money for his own sake. That's okay. And that's a key part of the parable, too. The steward was being generous with money that wasn't his. He was just a steward of the boss's cash. We think that the boss would have been mad, but that's the surprise here. That's the surprise. The boss is okay with how the steward spends his money. God's okay with us being generous to others with his money. The point here is that everything we have is God's. We're just stewards. And God is giving us permission to be generous with his money. God is giving us generous or permission to be even radically generous, even unwisely generous, promising to take care of us when we get fired, which we all will. I think that is likely Jesus' point in telling the story. Use God's money to be generous with others so that you have a friend at the end of your life because you're going to need one. Now, this interpretation, if true, does raise a couple questions, though. And I want to ask these questions before we wrap up for the morning. Two questions in particular. First, is this really how we get into heaven? Is Jesus telling us that the way to get into heaven is by being generous? Can we make up for a lifetime of sin by tithing? If only, right? 
What about grace? What about forgiveness? Well, no, that's not what he's saying. Jesus came to earth to die on the cross for our sins. I mean, if we could get into heaven by tithing 10% or serving at the food pantry, Jesus would not have had to die on the cross. It's not like we're buying indulgences to get into heaven. We are saved by grace alone. We are saved by faith alone. Having said that, if we're not being generous and wise with our money, there's a good chance that we're not living by faith. If we're not giving, we might not be the Christians we think we are. Jesus likes to push us here. You read the Gospels, Jesus is always needling his people about money. He's kind of annoying about it. And he does it knowing that how we use our money is a reflection of who we are. How we use our money is a reflection of our faith. It's easy to say you're a Christian. It's easy to say that you trust God, but not be a good steward with money. I know lots of Christians who have lots of money problems and aren't very generous. The average Christian gives only 2.5% of their income to their church. That's far below what people who, believe, who trust in the almighty, all-providing God and who believe in the church and who happen to live in the richest country in the history of the world, that's far below what those types of people should be giving. So yeah, we get into heaven by faith alone, but generosity and good stewardship are the evidence that we're actually people of faith. And there's a question here that we should ask ourselves in this regard, and we should be honest with ourselves here too. The question is, if you're a follower of Jesus, does your giving match your faith? If you're a follower of Jesus, does your giving match your faith? If somebody looked into your bank account, would it describe you, would your bank account describe you as a person of faith? Or, or would it describe you as a person of coals? Or would it describe you as a, a person of restaurants? Or a person of weekends only? Or as a person of faith? Your bank account should look like you're a person of faith. If we say we love Jesus, the poor of the church, we should show Jesus that we mean it. Now, the good news here, and it's very good news, is that there's help for us here. Uh, we actually sponsor a financial management class here at Rooftop occasionally. Uh, it's called Financial Peace University. In my experience, most people want to get their money in order. You know, they want to be able to give. They just need some help getting there. And there are plenty of success stories walking around here at Rooftop of people who did what they needed to do to get their books in order so that they could live more generously. I mean, if you're interested in that sort of help, let us know. We can hook you up. There's hope here. But you do have to admit that there's a problem. So that's question caveat number one. We don't get into heaven by being generous, but it does show God that our faith is real. And here's the second question. Is this a good reason to be generous? Should we be generous with God's money so that we get into heaven? Call me cynical, but that doesn't seem very pure-hearted. Shouldn't we be generous for the sake and the joy of giving? You know, not for the sake of, you know, just having someplace to go when we die. Well, yes. As the Bible says elsewhere, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, right? God loves a cheerful giver. You might have heard that. I must confess that in this respect, I am a terrible example for you. I am not a cheerful giver. Uh, confession time. Make me feel less alone, please. Raise your hand if you are not a cheerful giver like me. Is like a handful of you. Yeah, I'm sure the rest of you just love giving your money away. That's why it's averages to 2.5%. So, 
Okay, well, the, the three of us then, we will form a little Facebook group. <clears throat> Reluctant givers. I do honestly, though, know. I know lots of people who love giving their money away. It gives them great joy. Not me. I have to force the joy. I, I, would, ra- I would rather have my own money, myself. Uh, I have to force a smile on my face when I drop my check in the offering bag. I do not look cheerful. Uh, it actually usually looks like I'm constipated. I'm a constipated giver. <clears throat> in fact, not only am I a constipated giver, uh, I am a very selfish giver. I tithe 10% or more of my income for many reasons, but a big one is because I know I'm going to get it back. I've run the numbers. I know that my eternal reward for living generously vastly outweighs whatever temporary minor inconvenience I have to face by having less money here on earth. It's a calculation. I live with less here so I can have more there. Now, honestly, honestly, in terms of motivations, that's not great. In terms of proper motivation, I'm still growing. I would love to be able to give for the joy and the sake of giving. Now, we are making progress here, though. Uh, Michelle and I, for example, we've been recently giving to a new organization that we are thrilled to be able to send our money to uh, is the Equal Justice Initiative led by Brian Stevenson, who's a Christian. They advocate for racial justice and criminal justice reform. Uh, We love sending our money there. And that's one of the keys to being a cheerful giver, I have found, is finding a cause that you are just really excited about. I gave money to someone to go down to Mexico last December. I would I loved being able to do that because I've been down there. I know she's going to have a great time. So in terms of becoming a cheerful giver, find something that you're just genuinely excited about and just do that. But here's the thing. Just because God loves a cheerful giver doesn't mean that anybody who can't give cheerfully, which apparently is only like four of us, it doesn't mean that anybody who can't give cheerfully shouldn't give. God also loves obedient people who do what they know they need to do, even if their heart isn't in it. I don't want to forgive my enemies. I know I need to, so I do. I don't want to speak honestly with friends. I know I need to, so I do. I don't want to be generous with my money. I like having my money, but I know I should, and I know that in doing so, I'll have a friend at the end because I'm going to need one. And that's the question I want to leave you with this morning. Are you living generously with God's money so that you will have a friend at the end? Because you're going to need one. You're going to get fired. Due respect. You've been a terrible employee. Like me, you're a sinner who has wasted the life God gave to you. Now God still loves you. God came to earth to die for your sins. That's how much God loves you. And if you believe that, if you get baptized, you can be saved. But it's really easy to say you're saved and not be generous, right? God wants to see it. He doesn't just want to hear it. He doesn't want to hear it in our singing. God, I love you. I'll give you everything. He doesn't want to hear it in our prayers. God, I love you. I'll give you everything. He wants to see it. So give it away. It's his money anyway. We're just stewards. He's giving us permission to give his money away almost recklessly, promising us he's going to be our friend at the end. So give it away to people who need it more. You're about to get fired, and you're not going to have anything to do. You won't be able to beg or dig. You'll have nowhere to go but hell. God wants to be your friend. He wants to take care of you in the end. So by faith, live a generous life. Make sure you've got a friend who can look after you. That is my preferred interpretation of what was formerly my least favorite parable, but is now somewhere in the middle. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your son who came to earth to make us uncomfortable, to challenge our hypocrisy, 
to talk about the things in story form, even in secret story form, that we don't want to think about, whether it's judgment or money. He liked telling us stories about things that we didn't want to think about, don't want to talk about, like our greed, our ignorance of the future, our refusal to make plans, our poor job performances. We're all, we're all just, we're all waiting for our pink slip. We know it's coming. We're waiting for our pink slip. Death is our pink slip. We know it's coming. It needs to come. Let's be honest. We're all very imperfect human beings. But you, you love us anyway. You have to fire us, but you don't want to lose us. So you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. But he also told us what forgiveness really looks like, what faith really looks like. It looks like generous people being generous with our master's goods, blessing friends, blessing organizations, blessing the church, blessing the poor with everything you own. So help us by faith live generous lives so that we can know, as we can know by faith, that we've got some at the end ready to welcome us into our eternal dwelling and receive the life that is truly life. That's what we're holding out for, Father. The life that is truly life. Whatever sort of lives we build here on earth in our comfortable homes and what have you, just pale in comparison to the life that is truly life. The eternal dwelling that Jesus promises, promises us if we live generously by faith. We want to close our prayer time this morning, Father, by reciting together the words that have bound Christians together for 2,000 years words that we believe are true, uh, words that remind us who we are, what we think, what Christians around the world forever have thought, words of the Apostles' Creed that will appear on the screen for those who don't know them. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.